So, <clears throat> if you'd like to join me, we can take the uh, refuges and the precepts today. Please repeat after me in the Pali scriptural language. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa.
Let us now take the ten precepts. Do please repeat after me in English. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from harming or destroying living beings. To refrain from harming or destroying living beings. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from taking that which is not given. To refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from sexual misconduct. To refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from wrong speech. To refrain from wrong speech. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from intoxicants that cause carelessness. To refrain from intoxicants that cause carelessness. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. To refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To refrain from, from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. To refrain from acting out of ill will. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. To be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the eightfold path. To live with mindfulness and follow the eightfold path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. Through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts. Virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. May all beings make themselves truly happy. No matter how impossible that may seem. Thank you very much. Just a matter of time, it is possible. <laughs> Absolutely possible. Um, so, uh, yes. is, is, he, is it okay? Well, actually, you know, I'll move over there and she can sit over here if that's all right. What, whatever you would like, but that's okay. very thoughtful of you so that she's not where the air is blowing on her. And I'm going to move this here. Although she might even like sitting in the chair. So. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I'll, Would you I'll, like to I'll sit? I'll rather sit on the corner.
down the chair. Okay. And you can move your cushion here if you want to later on. Thank you. Thank you. Will we place one more shop? I can place it there. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. That's good. That shop comes from a little shop. Just up the street on Temple Road from the Dalai Lama's uh, temple, where the Dalai Lama from Tibet teaches. So, I should keep you warm. <laughs> <laughs> you can turn the chair if you like. So you <laughs> okay, so, where were we? Craving, yes. yes. I, I think, as I recall, the one thing that we really didn't say anything about was why do, why do we have, why are we this way? Why, when there is pleasure or pain, do we have craving? And why does this craving cause dissatisfaction and suffering in us? Why, why are we made that way? And, that's, and so we, we talked about the, the uh, tremendous advantage and benefit that it would be if we could overcome craving. But uh, we, didn't really, we didn't really address the question of why, why we have craving to start with. And I'll just uh, briefly point that out to you. It's, it's fairly obvious when you think about it. Okay? So, Craving arises in response to pleasure and pain. And the things that cause us pleasure and pain uh, are things that are potentially beneficial to us or potentially harmful to us. For example, uh, fruit contains many nutrients, vitamins and minerals. And it also contains sugar, which is sweet. And our bodies are designed so that when we bite into a piece of fruit, the sweetness produces pleasure. There's no reason why sugar should cause pleasure in us, but uh, from the side of the sugar, it's that our bodies are designed to experience pleasure when we eat something that's sweet. And what this does then is it causes desire, and then the desire causes us to go and find more fruit and eat it. So it's a way of making us do something that is good for us. Pain, a similar thing. Usually when we feel pain, it's a warning that it's caused, something's causing harm to the body. And the aversion that we feel, and the dissatisfaction that makes us want to change things, of course, is a way of protecting the body, you know. So it's a, it's a mechanism that's built into us to cause us to behave in particular ways. So we don't even experience pleasure and pain, or, or we don't even experience pleasure for our benefit. We experience pleasure so that uh, we will behave in a particular way that is a benefit to our bodies, not to, not to our minds and our sense of self and so forth. 
Uh, and if you think of other things, uh, another thing that causes craving in us is sexual desire. A, uh, a young person sees a, another young person who is attracted to them, and craving arises. And uh, it's not that when, the, when, these, when the young person is motivated to do things to uh, form a relationship, it's not even the pleasure of sex that is motivating it. When they see the person of the opposite sex, it causes them to feel pleasure, which causes craving, so they want to be with that person. Later on, of course, there is the sexual pleasure and the other things. But the whole purpose of this, the reason that we're born a kind of being that experiences pleasure when we see someone of the opposite sex, is so that we'll make babies. You know, And it doesn't matter if you don't want children, you're still going to experience that. And it's not for your benefit, because anybody who's had children knows having children, <laughs> it's, it's an incredible amount of trouble. <laughs> and if we ever knew, if, if we really knew, and if we didn't have this desire, this craving, uh, and we just thought about it, right, we'd say, no, 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 not me, right? And this is the decision that some people make. So we realize that this, this pleasure we experience, and, and, and the same is true of pain. But the pleasure that we experience and the craving that rises from it and the behaviors that we enter into as a result of it, this is, we are being programmed and controlled to do something that we might not even necessarily want to do. So all of this pleasure and pain and craving is about built-in automatic mechanisms to make us behave in a particular way. Not that benefits us as individuals, but that causes us to, you know, the things that we, uh, the things that we desire to have are things that can assist in our survival and assist in our ability to find a partner. And so our desires lead us to survive and reproduce. So really, this whole desire thing that we experience is a program that we're born with to make sure that no matter what we might like to do as individuals, we're going to be very likely to behave in a particular way that suits a program that isn't necessarily of our choosing. So now, many animals, their behavior is almost entirely instinctive, right? Almost everything they do is automatic. They're born with these instincts, and their behavior is a natural result of those instincts, and it involves no thought, no planning, and no choices. We, as human beings, have much greater capacity to think about, to plan, and to choose what we do. But you see, we still carry with us this mechanism of pleasure and pain resulting in craving, desire and aversion to coerce us into, into behaving in certain ways. And not only that, this mechanism 
causes us to experience satisfaction and dissatisfaction and suffering to make sure that we do some kind of action to bring these things about. See? So this is our situation. Here we are, intelligent, sentient beings, compelled throughout our lives to behave as a result of craving and to experience dissatisfaction and suffering due to built-in programs that actually detract from the quality of our life, from our happiness. Very interesting, isn't it? So, so what we're trying to do is to reprogram what we are to a better way. So why are we programmed to still experience dissatisfaction when we get what we want? To which? Why are we programmed to still That's so, so that we'll keep on going. We'll go and get something else. A little, we get a little dose of satisfaction for a very short period of time, and then more dissatisfaction will make us keep on going. And this is, you see, in, uh, in the Buddha's description of the way our lives unfold moment to moment, is that... Uh, there, is a, there are sense objects that contact the senses and we experience pleasure or pain. As a result of pleasure or pain, there's craving. As a result of craving, there's the grasping after that which we, we perceive as the source of the pleasure or, uh, in the case of pain, trying to eliminate the object that's causing that. And then the next thing that leads to is becoming. And this is, this is the nature of a human being is that we're always in this state of becoming, always trying to be something that we're not in the present. The opposite of becoming is being. And in the absence of craving, we have the opportunity to be in the present, in the here and now, rather than always trying to become something that we're not. So this is another way that you can think of what this is about is this is a mechanism that creates us as a kind of being that's always becoming something else, always committing ourselves to action to cause us to be something that we're not, projecting us into the future and out of the present. And you may know that, uh, that in all spiritual teachings, we keep coming back to this idea that the here and now, the only thing that really exists is the present. The future doesn't exist, and the past is gone. All we have is the present. You know, and uh, Ram Das wrote a book many years ago that is very popular called Be Here Now. Maybe some of you have read that book or know of it. But, you know, it's it's this basic spiritual teaching that it shows up in many traditions that, that we, in order to become the kind of people that we want to be, we need to learn to be here now in the present. And there is another more modern spiritual teacher by the name of Eckhart Tolle. And he has written a book, become very popular, it's called The Power of Now. 
And the message is the same thing. It's coming into the present, you, know, you see. So this is a universal message. Uh, what, what the Buddha is teaching us is how to bring it into becoming and to come into a place of being rather than, than this eternal cycle of becoming. And it is a cycle because as soon as, soon as you have satisfied a craving, there's only that brief moment of satisfaction at the most before the next craving is driving you once again into the future. So this is, this is the situation that we find ourselves in. So we want what we can see from the first three truths is that, that uh, life is full of suffering and dissatisfaction. And that the origin of this dissatisfaction is the craving that arises within us. And that if we can free ourselves from the craving, then we will be liberated from the suffering. And then the fourth truth is the path that leads to liberation from suffering. And that briefly, the path that leads to liberation from suffering is divided into three major components. The first is virtue. The second is meditation. And the third is wisdom. It's called the Eightfold Path because it has eight separate parts to it. The virtue part of it consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. These are the things that we say and do. The second part, meditation, has three parts to it. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the wisdom part of it has two parts to it, which is right view and right understanding. And we need to work on all of those simultaneously. But we need to perfect the virtue before we can perfect the meditation. So we work on them simultaneously. But there is uh, the need to perfect our virtue before we, we can only go so far in our meditation that, until we have perfected our virtue before uh, we reach a, a place where it's hard to, to, it's difficult to go further. And likewise, uh, the attainment of wisdom is a result of the perfection of meditation. So we'll talk about all of these different things. Okay? But let's go back to uh, understanding a little bit more the nature of craving. And I said that the craving is rooted in ignorance. Desire and aversion and ignorance are the three very fundamental uh, roots of all of our unhappiness and dissatisfaction. Um, and so to eliminate craving, we have to look at the ignorance part of it. Because uh, although we can, we can temporarily eliminate craving, to, it will come back again 
unless we eliminate the ignorance that gives rise to it. And that's, that's the tricky part, is getting through the ignorance. Yes? So why did the Buddha say that craving is caused by ignorance? Craving is greed and aversion. Right. Okay? All right. And they are dependent upon ignorance. So, I guess the three poisons are greed, um, greed, aversion, and delusion. Well, you need to, because of the nature of the way it works, you need to understand all three and you need to work with all three of them. Uh, that's a very good, good question, okay? And, uh, uh, and a very good way to approach this topic is from the basis of that question. So, we can, we, we've already investigated the relationship of craving to the fundamental problem of our suffering and dissatisfaction. And we've seen that that is something that is inherent with us from, within us when we come into this world. That we are born with the tendency to, to exhibit craving uh, as a program to make us do things in a particular way. And then that craving, in turn, is related to what we call ignorance or delusion. And uh, it is very intimately related to it, but it is still a separate thing. Even when the ignorance, e even when you begin to destroy the ignorance, the built-in program for craving uh, still exists. And so that must be dealt with separately. But what you're able to do, in how successfully you're able to deal with craving, depends on eliminating the ignorance that supports it, or the delusion that is the support of it. And so we need to clarify that a little bit. Let's say a little bit, let's, let's just identify the problem a little bit more. Let's broaden the, the, the scope of it, because this desire and aversion that we're subject to does more than just to make us continuously dissatisfied as individuals. It also causes us to constantly engage in activities to say and do things that contribute to the, uh, the that are harmful to others and contribute to the suffering of others. You see that? So it's a much larger problem than just our own uh, suffering. It's also what we do to each other. And if we look at the world, we see that so much of the pain and suffering in the world is unnecessary in the sense that it's, it is avoidable. It's what people cause to each other. We all agree with that? 
We have a world filled with pain and suffering that people inflict on each other. And they flick, inflict this pain and suffering on each other out of desire and aversion, through the compulsion of desire and aversion. So, uh, and, and actually this is something that's very useful to understand because it helps you to examine your own experience and other people's experience and understand it in terms of right view. Because when you see somebody doing something, engaged in unwholesome speech or unwholesome activity, you know that it is rooted in their own pain, their own seeking after pleasure, it's rooted in their own uh, craving. And likewise, when you find yourself doing something like that, when, whenever you engage in unwholesome activities, this is a red flag that says, there is desire and aversion happening. It's the only reason that we do these things. And you can look into it and find it. By the way, the same thing is true. Whenever you find yourself experiencing suffering and dissatisfaction, if you look into it, you will see there's desire or aversion underlying that. So unwholesome activities and suffering and dissatisfaction are all the, the outward manifestations uh, that uh, show us that des the desire and aversion are present beneath the surface, either in ourselves or in other people. So we look at this, and in our ordinary common sense way of looking at things, why are people greedy? They are selfish. And there is a perception of the self having need and there being a uh, limited availability of those commodities that we think are going to make the self happy. And so from the viewpoint of selfishness in a world of limited availability, then it, there is a logic to taking from others. Right? And so greed Greed is a natural arising uh, of, of desire, but that desire is focused in the idea of the self. And if we, even if we take away the desire, if we still have this sense of and this belief in ourselves as a self, sooner or later, desire is going, going to be rekindled. And the same thing, aversion. What causes us pain, we want to destroy it. We want to, we want to, at the very least, to avoid it. But very often we want to crush it or destroy it or whatever. And we have this strange urge that when somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them back. You know, maybe hurt them back so severely that they don't hurt us anymore. You see, that's the kind of primitive logic. Not, not the intellectual logic of our, of our uh, uh, human minds, but the primitive logic that is built into us is to, uh, is to punish, to attack, to punish, to destroy that which we are afraid of, that which harms us, that which threatens us, that which, threat that which competes with us for the limited resources that we have desire for. And so, 
we have the satisfaction, suffering, and all sorts of evil actions arising out of, of craving, desire, and aversion. But the root of this is this idea there is a self and there is a limited, there is a world of limited resources out there, or that there is a world of resources. Also at the root of this is the belief that our happiness and our suffering, that there is a self and that the happiness and suffering of the self is dependent upon what is out there. This is the nature of our ignorance. This is the delusion. But when I tell you that it's a delusion, it's hard to see that it's a delusion because it certainly seems to be the, rea it's the reality you've known your entire life. There is me. I am a self. And I experience pleasure and pain and I have needs. And there's a world out there and there's things out there that make me happy and there's other things out there that make me suffer. This is the way you experience it. And this is where your thought processes function. They come from this place of ignorance that, you know, if I want to be happy, I got to go get one of those things that makes me happy a piece of chocolate or a new girlfriend or whatever it is. Uh, and if, I, if I'm suffering, well, I need to uh, do something about the source of the suffering out there. But you see, we've already discovered that one aspect of this delusion when we were examining suffering. We realized that things outside of us can cause physical pain to the body or unpleasant tastes and odors and sounds and things like that. But we discovered that the suffering actually comes from inside of us. So we've already discovered, uh, begun to discover at least the nature of, of this delusion. So the delusion is that I am something separate from the world that I live in. I am an object, the world consists of objects, and the objects can make me happy or unhappy. That is the delusion. And all of that is, all of that is an error. It's not really the way it is. But it certainly is the way it seems to us. And it's very difficult to believe that it's not that way. Yep. Why cannot um, a person who hasn't uh, understood not self yet and, and uh, eradicate suffering by understanding that craving he can abandon craving, but as long as he still believes in himself as a separate self and a world of things out there that make him happy or unhappy, you know, uh, that cause him pain or pleasure, then he's going to revert to, to uh, trying to obtain the things that cause pleasure and, 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 and avoid the things that cause pain. And craving is going to reemerge. Well, you know, if, if he sees craving always causes suffering, then well, why wouldn't it work? You know, it's like, it's like you know, if, if a person is conditioned, okay, to, all right, to, to see that that's, that doesn't work. But uh, okay, yes, perhaps theoretically a person might understand that mm -hmm. and cease to uh, cease to pursue these things. But you see. Then the situation he finds himself in is that, uh, and, and actually this is something that you might experience as a part 
of the development of insight is you realize that you realize very quickly that very completely that craving only results in dissatisfaction and suffering. But if you still believe in yourself as a self, now it seems hopeless. So hopeless. Why would it be hopeless? It seems hopeless because here I am, this self, and no matter you know, no matter how hard I try, I'm never going to make myself happy. Well, it's because this person is using the wrong strategy. The strategy yeah. is to crave it. The, 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 right, the right strategy is, uh, is not to crave it. The right strategy is to overcome craving. Yeah, but we... Okay, let's... Uh, let me explain to you how we do that. And maybe it will help you see the problem. Basically, the problem is, as long as, you have the, as long as you have the delusion, craving sooner or later comes back again, even though you can temporarily get rid of it. And you can. You can overcome it temporarily. But it, it, it sooner or later will come back. So this is what when we talk about there being four stages of enlightenment. This is how we get rid of it. So first of all, the, 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 actually, the craving also supports the illusion, too, because whenever there's craving, there's a very strong sense of I. Right? You notice that. Okay. So, we break it down to say, okay, the, the part of the delusion involving the self has two parts. One is the belief in ourselves as being this particular kind of person with these attributes, with these needs and desires and so forth as being real. And the other is this inherent sense of being a separate self. Oh, I see. There's a contradiction there. So we have these two parts to the belief in the self. Oh. And then we have the craving. And what the Buddha found is that when we can get over the belief in a personal self, this allows us to start working on the craving. And then we can overcome the craving. So the first stage of enlightenment is when we get past that belief in the personal self. The second and the third stages, we eliminate the craving. The craving is gone. And then the fourth stage is we eliminate that inherent sense of self, which we couldn't get rid of as long as there was still craving. As long as we still had craving, that inherent sense of being a separate self would still come to life. Keep on trying to trying to make this as clear as we can. Okay, great. Okay. But you see, the problem is, okay, we can see the need and the desirability of overcome craving, but if the craving is rooted in a delusion, and when we're told the nature of the delusion and we still it we still can't it doesn't seem to be that way. The work that we, you can see there's a lot of work that we have to do to overcome the, uh, uh, this delusion. Yes? Um, what I have learned, uh, I don't know if it was from the last class I took with you, but um, I analyzed, uh, I have an addiction for clothes. I love clothing, you know, mm -hmm. I love the fashion and, and, and that, and I work with that kind of a lifestyle. Um, but I analyzed why I like to buy, you know, clothes all the time, and I realized that what 
art of designing, you yeah. know, not so much of the, the, the item, but so much, I, now I, I don't buy anything anymore, but but I, I still look at a lot of fashion shows, like it's like I, I love to see the designers and their, and their artwork, mm -hmm. and I realize that I don't have to have those clothes, but I admire the design, and that's what I came out with, is I don't crave those clothes anymore, I don't need, I don't need to have them. I can just enjoy them watching them mm -hmm. because I enjoy the art of the designer. Mm -hmm. And and that's been a very big lesson for me because you know, it was like an addiction. I mean I love clothes, I used to love clothes. Mm -hmm. So that simplifies um, your life a little bit, doesn't it? Yes. But I mean <laughs> but it's sometimes not to have so much craving. It, 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 I think it becomes an anxiety, it becomes a, a, a it's almost like a social a competition in America, almost like it, it's I, we don't have that in Mexico. Uh, unless you come from another country, you can sort of experience, uh, because in Mexico, there's a lot of poverty also. Yeah. Everybody dresses however they can. Nobody tries yeah. to get those jeans or those dresses or those. So when you come to America, it's like a rat race. Everybody has to have it. Everybody has to look at each other. And, yeah. and I remember coming from Mexico here in 1969, and everybody looked at like one picture. Everybody looked the same to me. There was too much repetition visually. In Mexico, everybody looks different, you know, and I'm sure in China too, or other countries. Mm -hmm. But America is, is, is it's a race of who has more, or who has best, or who has, and it's exhausting. I don't understand how people survive that, all their lives like that, you know? And so I'm glad I'm not about that race. Yeah. <laughs> I've been falling into the Western world, you know? I, I, uh, yeah. well, I think it was right. The whole world, though, is, is subject to craving. And unfortunately, you know, it's uh, another part of the delusion is that we don't really see what's wrong with greed and hatred. You know, we can we can see that uh, too much greed is not good, or, or too much hatred, or for some people, I wouldn't even say there's no such thing as too much hatred. Maybe you just hate the wrong people or the wrong things, you know, but. In the world at large, we don't see desire and aversion as being a bad thing. We see them as, as good things, you know, and they are promoted. And as you're saying, in, in our North American society, in the United States in particular, from the time we're a child, you know, we're bombarded by television, magazines, and the general attitudes of everybody we associate with, you know. little tiny child goes to nursery school and wants to have what the other kids have and is actually, you know, there is this feeling even amongst children that uh, uh, if they don't have what other people have that they're, you know, uh, uh, they're missing something, that there's this, there's this lack and that they need it. So, it's very unfortunate. Very commercial. Like, um, uh, there's children committing suicide because they don't fit in in school. That's right. And, uh, I experienced one kid that was seven years old that they, they already made fun of her pants and the mom forced her to wear those <coughs> And she didn't like to shoot herself. Yeah. Seven years old. Right. And it's like, yeah. how can you have a mind like that? So sick already. So it's not easy to make people realize that desire and aversion are not good things because we are we are made to believe that they are in many different ways. <laughs> <laughs>
talk about self and the ideas of self and, and what it is that we're grasping after when we, when we think about self and feel self. So, so yes? When you were answering Michael's question before, you differentiated the personal self from this inherent sense of self, right, in those four steps. Mm-hmm. But what's the difference between understanding that there isn't a personal self versus Okay, so what happens in the first stage is that you lose that intuitive conviction that you you are a personal self with attributes and things like that. You understand, you might say at a gut level or an intuitive level, that that is not true. But you still feel as if you are a separate self, no longer a personality self, no longer a a self with attributes, you know, male and female and likes this, doesn't like that. You see that all of those things are, are not self. But you're still left with this sense, this feeling of being of being a separate entity, that there is a, a feeling of selfness and a feeling of otherness. Okay. okay? And even though you know that, uh, e- even though you know that it's an illusion, the feeling is still so strong that it affects your, your view of, of the world. And so, um, all right. How how to approach this from the next step? Okay, so uh, just one final thing. Hopefully, you can recognize that all of our unwholesome emotions and mental states and activities and behaviors all arise from this same craving. Uh, and the delusion about the nature of the self and the world. Okay? All right. So the magnitude of the problem is visible. It goes far beyond just our personal dissatisfaction and suffering. The entire human condition of humanity as a whole and the way we treat each other and in all of our interpersonal relationships, the struggles that we have and, and the ways that we fail to support each other or hurt each other or disappoint each other and so forth. And the, the, the people that we love and that we care the most about. All of this is coming from the same root of desire, aversion, and delusion. Okay, so now we're going to see if we can begin approaching the, the, uh, the, the solution, the understanding the solution. So to help us in understanding this, First, let me say that um, we need to make a distinction between ultimate truth and what I might call relative truth or con-
consensual truth. Ultimate truth is that reality that is behind our illusion. That's when the delusion has been removed. The illusion is gone. Ultimate reality is what lies behind it. Relative reality is the reality that we experience personally and that we share with each other, which is why it's also called consensual reality, because we share it, it's the reality we share with each other. Consensual reality, relative reality, is rooted in the delusion. And so this is where we have to start. We have to start where we are. And we are in, in the realm of relative truth. And so this is where we're going to work from to arrive at ultimate truth. And what I want to point out to you from the start is that as the delusion begins to fall away, it can be terrifying. Because we are very, very deeply attached to this delusion. And we are not capable of conceiving of anything other than that. And so it feels as though we're in the process of losing everything that is meaningful and important. So, when you embark upon a path by means of which you are going to discover that the self that you cherish does not exist, that it's an illusion, this is going to seem, it's not going to seem like something that you want to do. It seems like death. And in a way it is like death. But, and if, it, if there were not an ultimate reality beyond that, it would indeed be terrible. So the danger is that as we learn that self is an illusion and the world the way we perceive it is an illusion, there's a danger that our mind will slip into a state of negativity. It's called nihilism. Nothing matters. Nothing has any meaning. Nothing has any point. And it, it creates a feeling of depression. It's frightening. Okay? So we want not to slip into that. We're going from the delusion of believing that we might perhaps have some kind of eternal soul that is a part of an eternal world. And as we lose that, we don't want to slip into that nihilism of thinking, there is nothing without a ground that is hopeless. Everything is meaningless. Nothing has any point. Uh, because we, we need to get through that so that we can achieve the ultimate reality, which is the ultimate reward. It is, uh, it, it is the only thing that's worth doing. And so you have to have the faith to start with that there is that. I don't know how much you know of history, but... We know of the horrible things that happened in uh, World War II in Nazi Germany. What many people don't realize is that that society, the leaders of that society, 
were nihilists. They had, uh, they had been uh, deeply affected by the philosophy of a man named Friedrich Nietzsche. And Friedrich Nietzsche basically exposed the truth that uh, a lot of modern science and philosophy is pointing to, which is that most of what we cling to as important is an illusion. But without any sense of the ultimate truth that lies beyond that, these unfortunate people slipped into a state where they believed that there was nothing had any true or ultimate meaning. And you see the horrible catastrophe that it brought upon a large part of the world. So don't allow yourself to slip into despair and hopelessness and nihilism. There is an ultimate reality that once, once the delusion has been removed, once the veil of illusion has been drawn back, then the experience of that ultimate reality uh, will completely and permanently and totally remove all fear. In the first stage of enlightenment, not only do we completely overcome the attachment to the personal view of self, but we lose all doubt. Well, yes, but what is it? Efficacy of the Dhamma means the doubt that the doubt the doubt that there is this ultimate truth that uh, transcends and eliminates all of our fears and concerns. And how do we avoid Because what we're going to do is to reveal a truth through direct observation. And your only danger is if you interrupt the process of direct observation and start conceptualizing it. Okay? Because relative reality obscures ultimate reality. Relative reality is in the realm of concepts and ideas and the workings of the mind, the appearances of the mind. So, you know, what happens when you no longer believe that there is a self or a soul and that uh, this body and mind that you are is is just a temporary thing constantly changing and that death will disintegrate. The fear comes when you say that, well, that's all there is. Because this is in the conceptual realm, you can't conceive anything else. So you've got to keep on directly examining. Don't, don't, stop, your, don't stop your investigation and start thinking. If you stop your investigation and start thinking, it will, it will become very disturbing. <laughs> I mean, you can... The only thing that you want to think about is to think about how what you've learned coincides with the Dharma truths. Because they will guide you. But if you get off on your own and start thinking that, well, if that doesn't exist, then, well, then it must be this way, and, well, that's, that's all there is, and that's terrible. Then you feel very disturbed and disappointed. Um, it's not. It's. It is challenging, but it's not as difficult as it may sound. And 
there is the risk of becoming caught in negative thoughts as the truth begins to reveal itself. Reveal itself. But uh, with some guidance and with some care on the part of the, the yogi, the Buddhist practitioner, that need not be a great difficulty either. You know, it, it can be dealt with. And to give you an idea of where we're going here, this is, this is a great example that actually came to me in one of my interviews this morning. I've never thought of it before, but I think it illustrates it very well. You know, at, at one point in the history of human beings, not that long ago, uh, people posited that in the, the sun and the moon and the wind and the rain and the weather and the seasons and all of these things that they saw going on were, the, were dependent upon the action of a god. Right? Are you familiar with that? And that the sun rose every morning because there was some god that nature that that happened. Because they couldn't figure out how things would happen the way they did. There must be a god running this. You know. And the animals and the plants that they depended upon to live came and went in cycles and uh, they assumed that you know, somebody was in control of this whole thing. And they made sacrifices to their gods and they prayed to their gods and so forth. Because they could not understand how this vast, complicated, interconnected world could work without somebody in charge. Right? Do you have any trouble understanding the way nature works, and the way weather works, and things like that? Do you need a god to explain the rising of the sun? changing of the seasons? No, you don't. For those people, it would have been extremely difficult to give up because they couldn't understand how this could work without a God. What, what the Buddha is asking you to do is to look into yourself. And they, there's kind of a, we think there's a kind of a God inside that we call ourself, the Atman, our soul, our, our inner being. There must be somebody inside here making the decisions, responsible for this and that, experiencing the suffering, experiencing the pleasure. Uh, when the windows of the eyes are open, there's somebody looking out, right? Somebody who's doing the seeing, somebody who's doing the hearing. You, you are, in your belief in there being that kind of a self within you, you're like a primitive person believing that there must be a God making the sun rise and the seasons change and, and all of this. So, in your investigation, you're going to come to the same place in terms of your belief about the self that you already are in terms of your belief about a, a God that makes sure that the seasons change and that the plants grow and that the that the animals come back in their season so they can, uh, can, can feed from to a person. So I, I say this to you to assure you that, that although it's difficult to understand how we could function and be what we are without the self that we imagine we have, you will be able to understand that and it will, be, it will make perfect sense to you.
so let's say that I do understand that and disaggregate, you know? Mm -hmm. um, when I look at like very poor people and very rich people, mm -hmm. the poor people are not as happy. Mm -hmm. So even without this idea of self inside of me, Well, you need a sense of self. You don't need. You may not need to to believe in a soul kind of self. Okay. You don't need to believe in a soul, but you still have to feel like you are a self, and therefore there's. there's But I, you know, and, and you don't 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 worry about it. I, I, I'm telling you, uh, I'm telling you, so that you know, as you progress in your understanding, you recognize what happens. You recognize that you no longer to believe, you need to believe in in a soul-like self in order to have an inherent sense of self that still seems to be separate and, and would like to have other things, but. What will surprise you is the degree to which, once you no longer believe in this soul-like self that you are, how little you need, what you, what comes with that is being able to be more in the present and less, less becoming and more being. And with less becoming and more being, there is also, likewise, more satisfaction and less need or so many things. Uh, also, there's a little part about what you said. You see people that, poor people and rich people, and you see that the poor people are not as happy as the rich people, but a starving person is not as happy as a person who has food to eat. Right. Right. But sociologists and anthropologists will tell you that people living in Poverty, provided that they are, are not ill and they're not starving, tend in general to be happier on a daily basis than people with a large amount of material goods. To the degree that you still are attached to the self, when you begin to perceive its unreality, then its loss is depressing. To the degree that you have given up attachment, attachment to the self, or to the degree that you have strong equanimity, it's not as disturbing. Now this, actually this brings us to an important role in, of the practice. Now, in the practice of meditation, if you develop samatha, which is like the, samatha is the tenth stage of those ten stages. What you have is 
inner joy, you have tranquility, and you have equanimity. And those are very, very strongly developed at this stage. If you have those qualities, you can uncover, you can reveal the truth about the self and the truth about the reality of the world, and it won't bother you. You can accept it totally. You have very strong equanimity. So without it, almost for sure. Without it, you, your attachment to suffering is going to be very strong. I mean, you're not suffering. Your attachment to self is going to be strongly activated. So you need a lot of equanimity if you want to do this investigation without this risk of depression and, uh, and, uh, and fear. Uh, in, the, in the progress of insight, if you do dry insight practice without developing samatha first, but the samatha comes later, then what happens is you go through a stage called the uh, knowledge of terror followed by the knowledge of misery, followed by the knowledge of disgust, followed by the uh, knowledge of, of reflection. And then, with this reflection and the development of determination, you continue your practice, and then you develop samatha, which in that progress of insight, samatha is called the uh, knowledge of equanimity towards formations. If you do samatha practice, you already have equanimity towards formations, and you can skip the knowledges of misery and, and, and disgust and so forth. <laughs> okay? So, so, but even if you don't have samatha, and even if you don't have strong equanimity, you can still just persist in your practice and pass right on through the, 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 the fear and the misery uh, uh, stages. The fear and the misery are only there because you still have attachment to self. Even though you are understanding in a deep way that, wow, this self isn't real at all. You know, there's still an attachment to it, so there's a sense of loss, sense of something being taken away, destroyed. Um, things become meaning. Along with that comes understanding of the emptiness of the world. And with the emptiness of the world, then a lot of the things that have given your life meaning previously begin to no longer have the same power to satisfy that need for me. That's why tranquility and equanimity and inner joy are very important qualities to, to develop, very valuable qualities to develop. Not indispensable, at least in the early stage. You do need to have them ultimately, because that final breakthrough really does require a lot of So what the next stage in our discussion, and it is just getting close to time for us to stop talking tonight. <laughs> but what we'll be continuing on with tomorrow, uh, we're going to talk about what, how the Buddha described what a person is, what an individual is. And the Buddha said that there are two parts to a person, and I'm sure you would agree with him completely on this. He said there is the, the, the material part and there is the mental part. The, 
as you might say, the mind and the body, the physical and the mental, these two parts. This is called Nama and Rupa. Uh, Nama refers to the mental part and Rupa refers to the physical part. The Buddha further said that the mental part, there were four uh, constituent elements that made up the mental part. And these are uh, consciousness, mental formations, perception, and feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, uh, and neutral feeling that we talked about. So these are, there are these four constituent elements to the mental part. So there's five constituent elements to a person. And uh, so what a person is, each one is the, these five collections of constituent element, elements. We are the material aggregate or collection, the you know, aggregate collection, heat, pile, whatever you want to call it. We'll probably usually say aggregate. Okay, so this is the material aggregate. And then there is the aggregate that consists of feelings, of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings. And then there is the aggregate that's made up of perceptions. And then there's the aggregate that's made up of mental formations. And that is the largest and most complex of all of the aggregates. And then there is the aggregate that is made up of consciousness. And so what he has suggested is that these five include everything that you will find if you investigate who and what you are. You won't find anything that's not included in these five. And, and so the five aggregates are a tool that's used for investigating the nature of a person or an individual. And the idea is to discover, first of all, to determine that indeed those five account for anything. Or do we need to posit a soul or self in addition to these five? And if you satisfy yourself that indeed these five encompass everything that you experience, everything that you know, then there's no reason to say, well, that there must be a self or soul other than these five aggregates. And then the next thing you do is say, okay, let's look within these five aggregates. Maybe that's where the self or soul is. Or maybe all five aggregates together is the self or soul. So this, this, is, this is the process that uh, we will undergo in this investigation. We'll take, we'll, and we'll take that up tomorrow. I have already, though, been talking to a number of you to begin looking at these things, to look at the difference between sensation and perception, and to recognize there's sensations and there's perceptions, and they are different things. And also suggested to you that you try to identify the feelings that arise associated with your experiences. And if you can distinguish the sensations from the perceptions, to try and notice that, that a sensation is associated with a feeling, and each perception is also associated with a feeling. Sometimes the sensation and the perception have the same feeling. Sometimes the sensation and the perception have different feelings associated with them. But uh, 
this is this is a very important part of this investigation, the path of insight. So, this is what's called the uh, purification of understanding. A purification of understanding is is through the direct observation and the recognition of these of the of the nama and rupa that makes us up as an individual or as a person. Any questions? Yes. Oh, I was just thinking, uh, so, so the mind um, has a tendency to have a desire to grab, and the corresponding uh, sensation is tension, because when you try to grab something, your muscle tightens up, and then it's a yes. sensation of tightness. And uh, they, they kind of, they, they're both um, results of grabbing. So, yeah, that would be a physical sensation that's associated with somebody else might, when grasping takes place, they might feel a tightness in their, in their stomach or, you know. But yes, you have sensations that arise as a result of the, the mental grasping. Any other questions about what we talked about tonight? Okay. So, in your meditation practice, as we develop the power of mindful awareness, so I was earlier talking today about, you know, when Neil asked, how do you stay engaged with the breath? Well, we look for, to be able to see more and more detail. We sharpen the mind up. The mind begins to work much more quickly and to be able to to identify many things that were previously uh, a little bit too subtle to notice. And as one person said today, that uh, whereas before I could see three different parts to the end breath, now I can see eight different parts. See, so this is, this is the mind becoming sharp and clear so you can see more. It's with this clarity and sharpness of your mind that even though perception and sensation follow just like that. Yeah. But when your mind is sharp and clear, then you can see the sensation and you can see the perception and you realize that they're different things. And you can even see the feeling that comes from the sensation and perception and that they're not the same thing. And this helps, this will be very helpful to you in this process of, of understanding. And as we go along, there will be more and more things like this that, that with your mind well-trained, sharp, clear, focused, and bright, that you are able to see uh, the nature of, of, of what's happening. With that, you can see, amongst other things, that process that I talked about earlier, that when there is sensation, there's feeling. We just talked about that. And as a result of the feeling, craving arises. So when your mind is sharp and very clear, you'll be able to see the craving that arises. And then as a result of the craving, there's a grasping. And then you can see the grasping that arises as a result of the craving. And then as a result of the grasping, we have the impulse to act in a particular way. Now, even before you can see all of these other things, just when you get your mind sharp enough and clear enough so that when the sensation happens and everything else happens and you come to the point that you're about to do or say something that would be unwise, if you can even see, catch that quick enough, 
not to say or do the things that are unwholesome. That is great progress right there. That's, that's the basis of our practice of virtue. What if I experience like today I have to go fix my tire? Yeah. Like, when I get into town and like, I'm dealing with people and talking to people, I feel like I'm floating around. I don't feel like I, I just don't feel like I'm with it, with everybody else. It's like, what, why do I feel so, so different? It's like, weird, and weird things happen around me too. It's like, when, when did this happen? Like magical things happen. Today, just things today. It's like, you, you went out and fixed your day. tire today? Yes. My <laughs> friend Nancy left, I left too. But the last time, the last time, same thing, I had the same problem the last time in the other class. And, and very interestingly happened, things happened after I left the class, like real magical things. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, I'm just like, um, they like, kind of little like miracles, or I don't know, it's just like incredible, well, very positive. I mean, just, wait. like, they're like little miracles to me. Well, I can't explain why those things happen although we could have an interesting discussion about them. But the feeling you have, and you, with all the practice that you've done over the last few days, you, you are in an altered state of consciousness. You have a higher state of consciousness. Your mind is moving more quickly and perceiving more clearly than it usually does. And so it's not unusual for people when they go out of retreat to, takes a little while to adjust. Very often, usually, it seems that everything is going really, really quickly, and you know somehow they they are just sort of floating around in this nice, peaceful place while the whole world is going crazy around them. You know, and they sort of wondering why why is everybody like this? <laughs> so, but um, that's about as much as I can tell you why it was that way. I I will though tell you that to get the maximum benefit out of a retreat is to not interrupt it. You know, even when you go to the bathroom, keep meditating. And going out into the world in the middle of a retreat is going to, it's going to take away from all of what you have developed in the preceding day. So as much as possible for the rest of this retreat and for any future retreat, try to plan things so that you don't have to go anywhere and do anything. Okay? I mean, just, it will be very much to your benefit to do that. It was just a must. Yeah, yeah okay. Yes? Michael? Uh, Michael? Yes. Oh, oh, you know I have a question. I need to raise my hand. It's that little question mark that writes out of the top of your head. We can all see it. You didn't know it was there? No. Well, I'm just thinking, I don't really have a question. So sensation, say, for example, if I have a, a recollection of a, of a memory from the past, that's, that could be a sensation. That would be, uh, and, and that would be, well, <clears throat> let's, uh, that would be a mind object. Mind object. That would be a mind object, uh -huh. a mental object. Uh, just so we don't confuse ourselves, when we say sensations, let's mean from the five physical senses, seeing, hearing, feeling, okay. so forth. Okay? okay? All right, thank you. All right. But we also, yes, the, we have, uh, in terms of what we are aware of, they are the two kinds of objects, sensations and mental objects. And if you think about it, you have never in your whole life been aware of anything but sensations and mental objects, because there isn't anything else.
sharpener, if you could see the sensation and the feeling that comes from it, and the perception, and maybe a different feeling that comes from that. Yeah. Do you think, like, just one example, perhaps, of something that might be that way? Um, let, let me give you an example. Sometimes, uh, if, if there's a big enough delay, it's really obvious. You know? So I'll give you an example. Whether you can relate to it or not, I know you can understand it. So a, if uh, a stroking movement on the back of your arm is intrinsically a pleasant sensation. It's just, you know, that's nice. So, uh, the sensation is pleasant, but if somebody you really didn't like stroked your arm, <laughs> as soon as you had the perception of who was doing it, it would, it would be unpleasant, not pleasant. Right. So there's a sensation and one feeling, and then there's a perception and a completely different feeling. Okay. Okay? Okay. So most of the time they come closely together, but another example that you might look for is in our food, because in order to give our food variety and interest, we mix different flavors, some of which we wouldn't like at all by themselves. We put things in our food that are bitter or sour, and bitterness and sourness by themselves, we don't, you know, they, they have an unpleasant quality to them. But you might, uh, in the process of eating, sometimes notice that uh, the there is a, for example, part of the flavor you're experiencing is a bitterness, but as a part of the whole and because of the associations with it, that you are experiencing a, a, a pleasure from the perception from the, as a whole. Okay. Uh, most of the time, pleasant sensations are associated with pleasant perceptions, and it's very hard to tell the difference. It's only when they're different that you, it's really easy to tell the difference. When you have a pleasant sensation that, that is associated with an unpleasant perception or vice versa, then the contrast makes them easy to pick up. 